This week, we're talking about what time of day you're most likely to die. We're dead set on this one. It's more research required. It's not good, but it's not bad either. It's fine. It's it's an acceptable pun. Science and technology. Hello and welcome to More Research Required. I'm Amy Acceptable Pun Giacomucci. <laughs> uh, and I'm Abby Norling Ruggles. I'm, I'm not a, a pun master. It's true. Some of us have to be amateurs for a while just before we really get into the swing of it. I was kind of expecting that to be a pun, but it wasn't. They aren't all puns. Sometimes I'm serious. Sometimes I talk about serious topics like dying. Yeah, we're going to be super serious about dying in this episode. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm wearing my morning weeds right now. You can't see this on the internet, but I am, Abby can testify, in like full morning regalia. Yeah, that's super true. Some of your morning regalia appears to be beige. Okay. Well, beige is a lot sadder than black, I think. That's actually true. Yeah. Black is cool and beige is just sad. Yeah, black is like punk and goth, and beige is like, you can't today. (laughs) So, definitely the sadder option. Anyway, so our question is, what time of day are people most likely to die? Or is there a time of day when when more people die? Which is from friend of the show, Colin. Thanks, Colin. Thank you, Colin. One of these days I'm going to meet Colin. One of these days? I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. I... I think that everyone involved is just really into his role as a cryptid in our book club, mm-hmm. and I think that is likely to continue, so he, he might just continue to exist on the edges of your consciousness. One of these days I'm going to get a blurry photograph of Colin walking through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, didn't you already, like, see his face for a second on Skype? <laughs> You're right! <laughs> Colin, official book club cryptid. Maybe we're just making him up. (laughs) I'm like the person who has had, you know, significant, like, an experience with the cryptid (laughs) that I can, like, testify about, but none of you necessarily believe me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're we're willing to hear your Colin stories, but we're holding out our personal judgments. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about dying. Cool. So the thing about this question is that it sure has been answered by science to some extent. There's some research that's been done. There isn't that much more research required, as it were. (laughs) But I think we can get a little more research that is required somewhat. But I guess do you want to just go straight into background? Okay, we have a suspicion that we've read one of the same sources, so I'm going to try and see if it's true. Did you read Christmas and New Year as Risk Factors for Death from 2010? No, I didn't. Hey! Wow! Because I'm pretty sure you definitely didn't read the other one because it was like 90% stats and it was very hard and then I asked the internet to tell me what it was about. So this is exciting. (laughs) Okay, but I did also do that on one of mine because it was, I mean, it was mostly like, 
genetics and it was really hard. Wait, did we read the same one for that? <laughs> What's that one? That one is a common polymorphism near PER1 and the timing yes. of human behavioral rhythms from 2012 by Lim et al. <laughs> yes, I read that one. All right, then let's do that one first. Okay, so Okay. So did you read the the Atlantic's take on it by Lindsay It was Abrams? really handy that the Atlantic <laughs> produced a nice version of it that was just, like, much easier to read. It was so hard. Yeah, we aren't genetics people. But also, like, you have to be able to write genetics easier than this paper wrote it. I agree. Yeah. It's... <laughs> Yeah, academic writing should be more accessible. We've talked about this before, but like write your papers so that people can read them. But like this one especially. (laughs) My other source that I read for this podcast that we're doing right now, right here, was so much easier to read, even though they're on basically the same topic. I know some about statistics, so I can't say that it was like 100% plain English, but pretty close. Anyway, let's talk about the first one. Mm Mm-hmm. This is Lim et al, and it's mostly looking at the genetic component of the 24-hour circadian rhythm in human beings, which is pretty neat. They mm-hmm. used data from this 1997 sleep study where everyone in it was 65 or older, and they all had donated their brains to science, so it was recorded exactly when they died, and they all had had their genome sequenced, so it was kind of a perfect setup for this. Yeah, it was a really handy data set for them to use. It's really neat how that stuff works out. And they ended up wearing these things called actographs, which are devices that measure your sleep-wake patterns. I think your REM cycle also. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but anyway, so they ended up finding out that there is one genome pair that Mm -hmm. designates your sleep-wake behaviors. 36% of people have an AA pair, which means you're going to rise earlier. People with a GG pair usually wake up about an hour after that, so that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so about 16% of people have the GG pair. Mm-hmm. Probably me, but the AG pair. I really is feel the like middle. me also, but it is only 16% of people. <laughs> yeah, but like, I do some pretty powerful sleeping. I mean, yeah, same. But, like, there's also the whole social component of the sleep-wake cycle, so, like, maybe that's affecting it. Maybe it's because we're friends. Maybe. Maybe also waking up in time for a 9-to-5 job is not what anyone's sleep cycle would like to do, and it's just an entirely artificial thing that we've created because Hmm. of capitalism. Hmm, that's an interesting thought. Perhaps we should pursue that further in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they took this information, and they also found out that... People with AA and AG pairs usually die at 11 a.m. Yep, and then people with GG pairs usually die around 6 p.m. Yep, those are the only two times that people die. (laughs) Those are the only times that people die. (laughs) You can sequence your genome and know your exact time of death. You know how a lot of the time on cop shows they're like, we need to know the time of death and that'll solve the mystery? They really should have figured this out earlier. (laughs) There are only two times that people die. (laughs) Just those two. No other ones. (laughs) I wasn't really able to comb through the actual text of the study well enough to find out how likely people are to die around the time that their genome specifies, but some amount, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, I also just like, it's like I started reading it and my brain just turned off. It just felt (laughs) like when you're walking down the street at night and the street lamp right under you turns off. 
Yeah, I really just couldn't get through, like, a whole sentence of it. No. And, like, fully understand it. Yeah, academic writing. This had so many writers, and yet... I mean, that could be part of the problem. Mm, Too many cooks. (laughs) Okay, well, I could do mine, but it does answer this question, so... Okay, so should I do mine that doesn't first? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so this one, uh, in contrast to the other paper, I was really impressed by the brevity of both its abstract, which was basically just a condensed version of the paper, which you want, and its conclusions, which was one sentence that was just basically like, you know, there should probably be more research on this. <laughs> so <laughs> Nice. Yeah. I'm pretty behind Philip Sparker and Brewer and their paper, Christmas and New Year as Risk Factors for Death from 2010. They wanted to investigate specifically the way that people die of natural causes around Christmas and New Year's because, like, there is a higher incident of unnatural causes of death, Mm -hmm. external factors like car crashes and stuff like that. So I hope everyone had a good holiday season. (laughs) Yeah, I hope you're all doing good. Tomorrow is Groundhog Day, so don't drink too much on Groundhog Day Eve. I know it's tempting, and I know we all (laughs) want to get crunk for Punks of Tawny Phil, but keep it together, kids. Of course. But yeah, so there are U.S. death certificates on record, so they took those 57 million death certificates from 1979 to 2004 and just examined them for primary and secondary causes of death and then looked at like the frequency of death in each week period throughout the year, but with a specific focus on the week preceding Christmas and then the week of New Year. There was something that they noted in their data, which they called the double holiday spike, which sounds like it should be fun. But it is the fact that significantly more people die on those two days. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess that's not surprising. It's it's not fun. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like a really fun word and it sounds like some kind of celebration or like a delicious (laughs) beverage. But no, it is a lot of people dying on the holidays. This was when you only looked at natural causes, too, and that was throughout five major disease groups, circulatory diseases, neoplasms, respiratory diseases, endocrine diseases, and digestive diseases. They found those numbers by taking the number of observed deaths and dividing it by the number of expected deaths, even with the increased number of deaths in the winter, and they just found that there was a significantly larger number of people who died during those weeks, and they weren't really able to find conclusive evidence why. There were three hypotheses for this, one of them just being psychological stress during the holidays. The second one is the overcrowding of emergency departments. Hmm. Yeah. Just because of the higher number of accidental deaths and stuff like that? And accidents in general, I guess? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's sort of a self-fulfilling cycle where more people get into accidents, emergency departments get full, and then more people have to wait to get care who didn't get into accidents. There is also a hypothesis that this occurs because people are less likely to try to get immediate attention on holidays because they want to be having fun with their families and they don't want to disrupt it. Aw, that's sad. I know, like, it's very upsetting. So uh, if you feel ill at a holiday party, please go to a hospital. Yeah, that seems like a good plan, definitely. Yeah. I also wonder, like, if there might be some, you know, I don't know if you could really test for this effectively, but if there might be some effect of just, you know, a lot of people are traveling and 
eating large amounts of weird food that they don't normally eat and lots of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So if that might have an effect on their health. They actually did talk about travel deaths. They kept it as like a plausible but not probable cause Hmm. because a lot of the deaths occurred in people's home states. Oh, okay. That makes some sense. Yeah, like there wasn't a significant increase in people from other places. So Mm -hmm. that's basically what I've got. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I read a study that was called When People Die, Cause Mm -hmm. of Death versus Time of Death. It's from 2009 by Mittler et al., I guess. Bunch of people on this one, too. And it's about what time of day people die. (laughs) What time of day are people likely to die? So they took a sample of almost 5,000 disease-related deaths from New York City from the year 1979. I guess that's just what was available. Um, So that's 8.7% of all the relevant data of death certificates. And they just analyzed the death certificates, which had time of death on them, like declared time of death, you know. And there was a peak in... so So the low point of time of number of deaths was at midnight and then there was a 60% rise starting at 2 a.m. and reaching a peak at 8 a.m. and then a smaller peak noted at 6 p.m. But this is a bit questionable as the actual time that people die for a couple reasons. One is that the peak mostly shows in elderly people above age 65. They split it up into above and below 65 and there's definitely a much more noticeable peak at 8 a.m. for people 65 years or older. And the other one is just that it's very likely that this is not when the death occurred, but when the death was noticed. You know, this Mm -hmm. is when the death was declared, especially because it shows up mostly with older people. It seems like something that might be just, it's the nighttime and no one's like checking to see if your relative passed away in their sleep. And then in the morning, they start checking and they find these people and that peaks around 8 a.m. According to death certificates, the time that most people die is like 6 to 8 a.m., but that's questionable. The study also discussed the possibility that there's just less health care happening during the night. You know, people are tired, there's fewer doctors on duty and that kind of thing. So responses might be slower when people are having health-related issues. But they also talked about the possibility that circadian rhythms might have an effect. Remember, these are all disease-related deaths, so it's not accidents or anything. Right. But there might be issues with the use of sleeping pills or just that people are more likely to pass away during their sleep because their body is, you know, less active or something. It got into some fairly technical medical stuff that I wasn't the best at following, but uh, yeah, there you go. That's when people die. Well, all right. Looks like our job's done. (laughs) Thanks, science. You ruined our podcast yet again. (laughs) Hey, I warned you in advance that this would happen. I also think we could put a new fun spin on this question. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I do think like there is a question still here which is, is this the real time of death or is this the time that people are noticing the deaths? So yeah, I guess let's transition into our research methods section. I think maybe we should like put a heart monitor on a bunch of people and just like wait for them to die, I guess. Yeah. 
I think that's the best way to do it is to put some kind of monitor. What is the legal definition of death? Because I don't think it's when your heart stops. So I was actually just reading about what the legal definition of death is, and mostly it's based Mm -hmm. off of brain death. You know, so if there's no electrical activity happening in your brain, that is often when you will be declared dead. But there are some questions about this, I guess, partially because our machinery that we have or like the standard test that we do can't necessarily detect all brain death or all all brain activity and there's definitely a school of thought that says that this you know this is a completely arbitrary measurement that we're picking but we just have to sort of define death somehow Mm -hmm. and you know medical science doesn't know how to repair a brain that stopped working but that doesn't mean that you know, we might not eventually find a way. Anyway, it's a complicated issue, but I think the current common medical definition is if your brain is not functioning, then you're dead. Right. For the purposes of what we're doing, waiting like waiting for the heart to stop is probably going to be statistically almost identical to brain death. How often does it happen that someone's heart stops and then they just kind of like hang on for several hours, you know? Yeah, I mean, definitely... There is some amount of, I mean, you know, because people's hearts can stop and then they can be resuscitated and, and is that how you say that word? Yeah. Resuscitated. Resuscitated. Yeah, that's it. That's obviously not a death, even though their heart stopped. So, right. I guess ideally, if we want to go off the medical definition of death, it should be that we are, I guess, having some sort of monitoring system that measures electricity in their brain. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not a doctor. I know that you can do like an MRI and tell that way, but I don't really know how what tests they do normally. So I don't know if that's something you could be monitoring at all times. Yeah, I also think that maybe putting someone in an MRI machine and evaluating their brain activity at all times is maybe not going to accomplish the kind of research with minimal interaction that we need. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I know that you can, like, people get declared dead without being given an MRI, so, like, it's doable, but I don't know how it happens. Yeah, all I'm saying is that for what we're doing, we probably can just rely on heartbeats, and then if someone's heart starts beating again, we know know they didn't die. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We can put heart monitors on people, and then in the cases where the heart monitor stops working, we can, like, investigate further. And see, you know, are they dead? What was their cause of death? If they are, how long did they survive after their heart stopped beating? Like, that's probably stuff we can try to figure out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think that that would work fine. We would want to mostly look at natural deaths, right? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I was thinking about in the question, you know, whether there's a significant enough uptick in crime at night that that would affect the overall death rate or anything like that. But I don't know. Okay, so we just want to know deaths in general, because I feel like with external factors, it's more likely to be just based on the average cycle of living and the way that we have chosen to create society. Well, yeah, but I think that's its own question as well. I mean, I think they're separate questions, but I don't know the answer to the question, are there more deaths at night because crime and accidents are more likely to happen then? Or are there more deaths during the day because there's more people around doing stuff, you know, in terms of, like, accidental deaths and violent deaths. Okay, I think that this would have to be two different studies then, just because, like, the two conditions would sort of interfere with one another. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we could put a bunch of heart rate monitors on people, wait for them to die, which is really <laughs> gruesome. <laughs> um, Dedicate your life to science and give us your hearts. <laughs> I mean, they don't. we don't need to, like, take their heart. Give us your hearts. <laughs> You must consume it. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> hey, I was the one who said we didn't need it. You I were the one who said we did need it. I don't okay. know what we're going to do with it if we're not going to consume it. But you're the one who took it straight into, like, Lord Byron territory. <laughs> hey, don't we all aspire to be Lord Byron? <laughs> I guess. I guess. <laughs> like, now that you mention it, I guess I w- I've never thought I didn't. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> anyway, after we get these people to metaphorically or literally give us their hearts. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, right, if we have a big data set of exact times that people died and also ways that they died, we can get, you know, the overall death rate by time of day. And then we can also divide it up into, you know, accidental, violent, natural Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, I didn't talk about this in our earlier thing, but I found an article on live science or something uh, by Sarah G. Miller, and it it didn't have a lot of important stuff, but it did find out that on Saturdays, that's the highest number of deaths from contact with a venomous plant or animal. And I think that we <laughs> should good look statistic. into that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, probably just because, like, people are hiking, right? Yeah, but it's really low on Sundays. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's inexplicable. And also, they didn't really do a deep dive into it. They just, like, looked at CDC data. Was it possible that their data was just all really God-fearing people that (laughs) spent all of Sunday in church? (laughs) That's definitely possible. Christians are most likely to get bitten by snakes on Saturdays. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we can assume that that is true. That's like very biblical, actually. Like on that's Saturday pretty specifically? Genesis. Well, not on Saturday specifically, but I'm just thinking about how like finding the time that someone dies of eating the wrong thing or snakes happens to be on Saturdays. I just think that you know Adam and Eve, apple, snake, tree. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Anyway, that's our study. <laughs> Wait, I had something else I wanted to say about it before you started talking about the Bible. I'm sorry this keeps happening. <laughs> I don't know anything about the Bible. I started listening to Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie, and now I just am remembering. Oh, well, I know, I know things from that, because that's a good podcast, but that's, like, all I know about the Bible. Wow. I watched Jesus Christ Superstar. That's pretty much it. And the Prince of Egypt. I know about the Bible from those movies. Those are pretty much it. You're good. Cool. The The other thing that I wanted to say is I don't want to limit this to only elderly people because obviously they have specific ways that they die, which is the way that most people die because of their very old, fragile bodies. <laughs> but, you know, like old people are much likely to die in the morning or at least to be found dead in the morning, but that's not necessarily true of younger people, so I think our study should definitely include younger people, but we are just going to have to wait for them to die, so that could take a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think this might just have to be a very long-term study where 
we get thousands of people, including, like, small children, and just have them wear a heart monitor for their entire life. Wait, can we also wear heart monitors for our our entire lives as just, like, a sign of solidarity and also so that our deaths won't be in vain? Obviously, yeah, then when we die, we can be added to the data. Sounds good. That's how you achieve immortality. (laughs) Yeah, through scientific research involving yourself. I mean, that's if we learned nothing from our theme song. (laughs) It's that our research most likely will lead to our deaths, but it's not like we knew. But it's not like you knew. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good song, guys. (laughs) that we've now mentioned in like three back-to-back episodes so i think they know by now okay good amy would you like to speculate wildly about the results of this study i'm pretty sure that all the people who we put heart monitors in are just never gonna die (laughs) oh you think that we'll discover immortality this way no i just think that those people specifically will discover immortality like unrelatedly yeah right no but we will discover that immortality exists and these people are immortal yeah So, like, it accomplished something. That's good, yeah. No, I would take that as an outcome of this study. Yeah. Anyway, how about you? I don't really know that well. I think the people are still going to be a little bit more likely to die at night than during the day. But it probably does depend on type of death and age of person and stuff. I think Mm -hmm. probably not many of them are going to turn out to be immortal. (laughs) But you never know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you just have to keep yourself open to the possibilities in science. Science is about I also don't know when we're ever going to publish results from this study, because if even one member of our group doesn't die, <laughs> are we just going to have to keep waiting for them to die? We can just get rid of those results. Like, we can just remove or them. Or we could just keep the study going on into eternity. Oh, yeah. I That's mean, both fine. good options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Abby... How do you think that we're going to get money to buy that many heart monitors? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I did just box myself in a little bit by saying that we're going to keep this study going forever and never publish results, assuming that there are immortals in this study. Yeah. So, I don't know, maybe, like, the secret cabal of immortals that are out there? Mm, That's a good idea, like a vampire coven. Yeah, a vampire coven. They have money. They've been alive a long time. Yeah, they've been playing the stock market for years. Right, I I mean, that's what we always assume. They just have really taken advantage of good interest rates or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just have to steal one very wealthy man's identity to make cash as a vampire. Alternatively, we could keep it running off the inheritances from all the people who do die doing our study. So they ha- they not only have to donate their body to science, but also donate their entire life fortune to science. I'm sorry, Abby. Are you a scientist or not? Well, sure, I mean, me, but, like, all of these people? You think they're just gonna be on board? I'm sorry, participants in our study. I didn't know that you guys were not interested in advancing our scientific ideals. (laughs) So rude of them. Yeah, how dare they? We really just need to get one very wealthy person to do it, and then we'll be set. (laughs) That's true, as long as they die relatively early in the study. Yeah, you sign a thing that says that you're not allowed to get more than one heart transplant in your lifetime. Oh, right. That is a problem also that rich people live longer. Yeah, because they get more heart transplants and also everything else about being wealthy. Right. I mean, everything about their lifestyle and the fact that they have, like, much better access to medical care, etc. That we might have to do a murder of a rich person who's in our study is what I'm saying. 
Okay, well, maybe let's not talk about it on our podcast okay. before we okay, do we'll it. Okay, we'll talk about this after. <laughs> All right, cool. We have some things that we need to talk about before we end the podcast, though, and talk about <laughs> our illegal activities. <laughs> I mean, you don't know what we're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It could be anything. So we actually have some listener interaction this week, first of all. Wow. I mean, aside from all the questions we've been answering from our three very loyal listeners. (laughs) Well, one of them is Colin, who may or may not exist. So that's... Fair enough. Our two and possibly one additional very loyal listeners. We have so many loyal listeners. So Hannah, aka Science from the Liberal Arts, sent us an email. Also, the Liberal Arts keep shouting us out, and then we shout them out, and then they shout us out for shouting them out. It's a vicious cycle. Another one. Yeah. It's just gonna have to keep happening. Yeah, and like, I'm excited about it, and I really like the cross-brand interaction, but also we're we're trapped. Neither of us is gonna back down. Mm Mm-hmm. Hannah basically said, first of all, that Next Gen episode 5.2, Dharmic, which we talked about in our last episode, aka I can't believe this entire culture speaks in memes, is worth watching, even if you <laughs> have had it explained to you, because it did make her cry. It's um, a good episode. I think it's it's worth watching. I also want to note that a friend of mine was shown it in her linguistics class and just mentioned to me, I was shown an episode of Star Trek, and then... I correctly guessed that it was this episode, and this happened, like, right around the time of our last recording, and I was very excited about it. If you know a linguistics major and they say they've only seen one episode of Star Trek, it's that one. It's that one. Prepare to look almost psychic. (laughs) So Hannah also said she wants to put her name in for Mars colonization, so we have one! We got one. I think there's a lot of people who are in for Mars colonization. But we have one definite, so I think that's exciting. But she followed up to ask what characteristic is going to be used to define the different sections of the planet that we set up in the last episode, and then expressed disappointment at the idea of being in Space Hufflepuff, which we both have opinions about. so rude, because Space Hufflepuff is obviously the best one. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, do you want to be in space with a bunch of Gryffindors? Gryffindor's the worst house to be in space with, because, like, you do some dumb brave thing, and then all the air is gone from your entire quarter of the planet. Yeah, and then, like, let's look at Space Slytherin. You do some dumb thing, and then someone else pushes you out of the airlock, probably. Yeah, definitely. I'm not saying all Slytherins are evil, but I am saying that Slytherins have a lower tolerance for people doing dumb stuff that endangers their lives. Mm-hmm. I don't really have anything for Ravenclaw. I feel pretty good about Ravenclaw, too. <laughs> okay, but also Ravenclaw is going to be, like, doing dumb experiments all the time. Ravenclaw probably would do a lot of risking their life and limb in space to find stuff out which would be something of a negative. I mean, but I'd kind of be there with them, is the thing. Okay, yeah, I mean, I like having air, and I like having the emotional support that you need in space. Like, I do think that Space Ravenclaw would have a lot of, like, being overwhelmed by the vastness of space, and I can't be in that environment. Yeah, or Space Hufflepuff would just have some good, hardworking community building. We'd all work together to make sure that we don't blow up our airblocks like the Gryffindors did months ago. Yeah, like, you have to look at the context. Anyway, Space Hufflepuff is going to be the best of our communities because they are the ones that will last the longest. Mm -hmm. So thank you for writing in. Glad we could clear that up. (laughs) That burning question. And then finally, I'm just going to read this part and we can discuss it really quickly. So linguistics question. 
Are all memes idioms? Like, I can see how a lot of memes require at least a vague understanding of source material, but what about memes that are in the that-feel-one style? You don't necessarily have to know anything about Arthur to know that Arthur clenches fist.jpg is expressing anger. What's the language analog to reaction gifs? In order to answer this question, we kind of have to figure out a way to differentiate an idiom and a reference in, like, a meaningful and concrete way. Yeah, and that's really hard. I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap between the two categories. Like, there are idioms that aren't references to anything, but there's also a lot of idioms that are, you know, Shakespeare references or biblical references or just references to other things from our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, pedal to the metal. Like, that's a reference that you don't necessarily have to understand to get the idiom, but, like, most people do. I think that one thing that could be used is a reference in, might not bring up a specific feeling or a specific meaning outside of the reference itself. So like Arthur.jpg, I think, is being used to express a specific emotion, whereas referencing an episode of a show would be more like, this show sure happened. And so I don't know. Right. If I mean, idioms are definitely something that has sort of become part of our lexicon where you know, you use it outside of the context of just the the thing that it's referring to. Right, exactly. And but memes they're... are that too, for the most part. Yes. Well, I mean, there are different styles of memes, but some memes are definitely like that. So we would have to see if there is a meaningful difference in what idioms do and what memes that are references that also draw up a specific outside, like, additional layer of meaning do. And... Mm-hmm. Like, we would have to find a lot of examples of that and see the way that they're applied and probably do a lot of research because I don't think anyone really researches memes that much. I mean, some people do. Not, like, a ton. You've got your Gretchen McCullough's and everything. But anyway, yeah, it's an interesting topic that we would definitely like to talk more about, research more about. It's exciting. That's yeah. the, the basic idea of it. I also just want to say, personally, I think reaction gifs are most like gestures rather than an actual part of language, but... That's more of an opinion than anything, and also could definitely use more study. Yeah, I agree with that opinion. Uh, should we wrap up? All right. So, how do we wrap up? We say where people want to get in contact with us, and also that our music is by The Crips, and it's Marie Curie. Thank you. Our music is Marie Curie by The Crips. Uh, if you want to send us an email, much like Hannah did, or suggest a question, much like Colin may or may not have, depending on his state of existence, you can send us an email at moreresearchcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at moreresearch underscore, or you can go to our Tumblr, moreresearchrequired.tumblr.com. Cool. Do you have a sign-off? Uh... I mean, like, schedule an annual teeth cleaning and stay curious. That's a weird one. Yeah, I know. But I can't think of anything else. Did you have one? Uh, photograph your local cryptid and stay curious. I do actually need to schedule a dentist appointment, though. Yeah, yeah.
I'm trying to keep our children's teeth clean and strong. 